the BuckoCast. This is Jason Rolson back with you. And on the phone line tonight is Josh Taylor. What's going on, Jason? Not much. Josh is uh, working hard, anchoring some shows on KDKA tonight. So, Or sports anchoring some shows on KDKA, if that's even a verb. I'm going to make it up. Well, we can make it one now. I'm going to make that stick. He's sports anchoring. It, it'll be for now. <laughs> so, it'll be for now. I had to go out on the phone line to get him, but we're here. And uh, so... We're brought to you by the Pittsburgh fan right across the street from PNC Park. Visit them every time you go to the park for a ball game and see what new stuff you can get. All Pittsburgh sports all the time. Right across the street from PNC Park, like I said, or you can get them on Twitter at the Pit Fan or online at thepittsburghfan.com. And one thing we're going to add to the show going forward, starting with tonight, we're going to have the leadoff spot, which is just what it sounds like. This is the number one topic we want to talk about on the show this week. And... It's probably an easy one to guess, and that is that the Pirates are 30-38, and 38, have lost 7 in a row, and have gone 2-10 in their last 12. Uh, just That's just for the month of June, so they've got two wins in the month of June so far. So, uh, Josh, I think we have to ask ourselves, are the Pirates done in terms of serious contention for a playoff spot? Well, I don't think this is an answer that will surprise either of us, depending on who actually you know, would tell you about it. But if there's a, a way to describe swirling at the bottom of the drain before you finally fall through, I think that's where they are right now. And it seems so weird to say that before Father's Day. But there's nothing about what this team looks like right now that suggests that things can get any better. If that's even with the players that are injured if they come back healthy. Um, that's if, you know, even if a move or two is made within the next month and a half before the deadline comes and goes. Uh, there's nothing that gives me evidence right now based on what we're seeing at this point with a team that allows more than five and a half runs per game as a pitching staff there's no way to think a team that allows five and a half runs per game can even sniff contention much less try to find something here in these next few months so i'm going to say that they they are done it's 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 not a formality yet but it's one of those situations where they're they're pretty much dead men walking at this point let's uh Let's go over the depth of the depravity of the Pirates' record. Uh, 30 and 38, they are now last in the NL Central. Uh, looking up at Derek Dietrich and the Cincinnati Reds, who have just as many wins as the Pirates at 30, but have two less losses, so the Reds are above us in terms of percentages, winning percentage. And the Pirates have now leapt over Miami and San Francisco for the dubious honor of the worst run differential in the National League. And. There's a couple teams that are worse than them in, in all of baseball. The Detroit Tigers are minus 111. Baltimore's mi- wow. minus 124. Um, and then you have the Pirates third in all of baseball, minus 88. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm with you, Josh. They are all but done. And if you had to put a finger on it, it would be the pitching, like you mentioned. I'll give you some stats to back that up. So for this road trip the Pirates are on right now, they have seven games into the road trip. Uh, the starting pitching line... Uh, for the Pirates is 0-7, uh, of course. Uh, 58 innings pitched, 82 hits, 35 extra base hits, including 17 home runs. Thank you, Chris Archer. <laughs> 54 runs, 52 of which are earned. 36 walks against 55 strikeouts. That's for a good for an 8.06 ERA and a 2.03 whip. And let me correct myself. That's for all pitchers, not just starters. So, Ooh, yeah. Yeah, is it more than just the injuries, Josh, or is it just, you know, what could, what could we expect, really? Could we expect this kind of line, or would you expect even a little more? It, it's not just the injuries. It's 
the injuries are a big part of it. But at the same time, let's let's be honest with ourselves. You take away, and you and I talked about this before. You take away the two most consistent starters on this team, and Tyone and Williams. Any team is going to struggle. But you can make an argument that Jordan Lyles was number three as being the third most consistent starter. So now he's on the on the IL. You don't have who should be your second best reliever behind your closer in Kayoni Kella. You don't have the guy who brought you brought in to help you with your bullpen depth and Chris Stratton. He's not there. And the more you look around, the more guys are disappearing. Nick Birdie was supposed to be a guy that helped your bullpen get a little bit better. He's on the sixty day injured list. So all these injuries are piling up. So it's easy to point to that and say, well, they don't have these guys here, and that's why they're not playing well. That's not entirely the case because you still have guys that are left behind, like um, a, a Kyle Crick, whom you and I both have really high, uh, really high esteem for. Yep. Well, then he goes and gives up you know, a, a, a big run last night that were in the game where they had the lead where Atlanta comes back and ties it up. So that ruins that whole dynamic. Then there's a guy like Richard Rodriguez, who had such a strong finish last year and kind of came in out of nowhere and turned into a pretty good relief pitcher. And this year, he's been everything but. Then there's the Nick Kingdoms of the world, who's pitched in more than one different role. Like, got his first save uh, as a as a reliever. I think he closed out three different games. He started in four games, and for some odd reason, could not seem to find a rhythm, even though he struck out 32 guys in 34-plus innings, but his ERA was nearly 10. So we, we can keep looking at, you know, which guys aren't there on the roster right now, but the biggest thing to look at is the fact that the guys that are on the roster right now aren't performing. Joe Musgrove got touched up again by facing the Braves. It didn't come out of that start very well. And he talked about it. He said he had too many pitches that saw too much plate. Chris Archer's got the exact same problem. Chris Archer's got a much larger, much longer track record than Joe Musgrove has. And he hasn't been good. And outside of that, who's been their most reliable starter? Outside of those guys, is it Stephen Brault at this point? When you can't find who the most reliable starter in your rotation is, even taking away the guys that are injured, you've got serious problems. So that number, it, it shouldn't surprise me, but you hear it, you're like, my God, that's bad. It's still kind of a hard blow to take, but given what, by everything I just laid out, it, it should not surprise me with this road trip, what this pitching staff has done. But yet and still, it, it's just mind-numbingly awe-inspiring just how how bad things have fallen off in just a week and a half well let's dive let's stick on the pitching topic for just a minute and by the way i guess we should pass along that i'm sure many have heard by now but the pirates <clears throat> dealt nick kingham to the blue jays for a, a journeyman a player who's been it seems like on so many teams throughout his career just almost in every team pretty much in the mlb and that's cash considerations um <laughs> It's a, I, I apologize. That is so bad. I really apologize, everybody. This is what happens when you cover a team that is just downtrodden. You get downtrodden, too. Your material suffers. But anyway, we move on. Hey, hey, hey when things get weird, the jokes get weird. It's cool. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, Joe Musgrove struggled again. Uh, you know, previously, I wrote about this before. It seemed like his problem was his fastball not being quite as lively, um, just really falling off a cliff. He seemed to get that back when he had that eight-inning outing right before the uh, brouhaha with Josh Donaldson uh, where mm-hmm. he got ejected after two-thirds of an innings. So was that ejection enough to throw him off, Josh? Because that's a very unusual situation for him to get ejected, go through his pregame routine, and then come back two days later. Um, maybe. It, 
something would tell you maybe, but if you look at his last four starts, if we're not counting the two the two batters that he faced against Atlanta, if you go back to the, the three previous starts, you had that first start that he had against Atlanta on June 5th at PNC, where he goes eight innings, gives up three strikes out six, and wins that one. But then you have the two before that that he lost at home. We gave up six runs to the Dodgers. Some will tell you, yes, it's the Dodgers. Then he gives up, gives up five runs and six innings against Milwaukee after that. Some will tell you it's the Brewers, and I wouldn't argue with you. But there are a handful of starts within the last month or so, last month and a half, dating back to May, where he's gotten touched up a bit. He gave up uh, five earned runs and two and two-thirds against Oakland. Gave up eight runs, eight earned runs and three innings at, at St. Louis. So there, there's a couple when you mix in that Dodgers and the Brewers start too, just in the last month and a half to tell you, hey, he hasn't been maybe as good as we thought he would be when he was just on a tear in April. May came around and he just wasn't the same guy again. Yeah, he had one really good start at the beginning of June, but recent evidence will tell you there, there might be something wrong there. So it, it probably should not stick out as strange if you've paid attention to each of his starts maybe in the last six weeks. Yeah, just to back some of that up, you had the – uh, three innings start on May 9th, uh, eight earned runs. The one right before that on May 3rd, five earned runs in two and two two and two thirds innings. So it may even reach a little bit further back than that. If I look at his starts, the common thread I'm seeing in Musgrove now, as opposed to what I saw in April, lack of swing and miss. Uh, in six starts, or excuse me, six outings in in April, because remember he had that first uh, relief start when the scheduling was a little weird at the very beginning of the year. In those six mm-hmm. outings in April, he had double-digit whiffs in three out of the six. And one of the other ones was nine, so he's right at the uh, double-digit mark. Didn't do that again until May 30th. Um, so the swing and miss kind of left him. He was never a big whiff guy to begin with. But he has all these different pitches. You, you think he can just do some sequencing and, and mix and match things up, get back to basics, mix, mix and match velocity, but... I guess we need to ask ourselves what kind of pitcher are we expecting him to have for a guy with his repertoire, with you know three different kinds of fastballs he can throw anywhere in the zone, and a very good slider as well. Are we wrong to expect more? No, I don't think so. Just knowing everything we know about him, and like you mentioned, the, the mix of pitches that he has, and he has quite a few. It seems like he has a pitch for just about any occasion or any team that he's going to face, but it seems to not matter. So it's hard to really... You know, categorize it as one way or another. Is it should it work this way or should it work that way? And at this point, like you mentioned, and if you want to really go through the teams that he faced in April, his first two games that he pitched were were in relief against Cincinnati, started at home against Cincinnati, uh, on the road against the Cubs, where he shut them out in six in the third. Then he's at Detroit. Then he faces Arizona and on the road against the Dodgers, and that was a game that was more tough luck than anything. He only gave up one earned run and ended up losing that game. And they lost that game 3-1, to one. so that might not have been his fault. So to see what he did in the first month of the season, you say, well, this is what you expect him to do when everything is working. But the problem is everything isn't working. So, yeah, I would say we should expect more from a pitcher like him, given the kind of stuff that he has, given the expectations that have been placed on him, and given what he's done early in the season. He gave us you know, a preview of what we could expect. And you know, as much as we talked about the starts where things haven't gone wrong, he's had one or two sprinkled in in between where things have gone right. And if the things that are going right are being done more consistently, maybe the results are more consistent across the board. Yeah, so you're, you're right. I mean, it has to boil down to consistency. He has to go out there and execute his pitches. He has to go out there and, and put it all together. 
if you look a little deeper, and we'll, we'll get off of the Joe Musgrove topic on this, but if you look a little deeper, he throws his forcing fastball the most when it comes to a two-strike count. Maybe the answer is, you know, throw the slider a little more. I don't know. But I would like to see maybe get into a little more sequencing because he's going to have to basically use everything in his tool belt to really, you know, start putting his career together as a starting pitcher. But let's talk about the other black elephant in the room, and that's Chris Archer. So, Josh, I was telling anyone who was listening yesterday that I was a staunch defender of the Chris Archer trade. I think right up until probably that fourth home run. Fourth of four consecutive. I think there was one out in between the four. So they weren't true back-to-back-to-back-to-back. But, man, five home runs total, four in one inning, three of the four of the five total came on his fastball. Uh, what the heck, Josh? What's your take on what happened with him there? Um, I think he's throwing the ball way too much over the plate. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. It seemed like his fastball, it either couldn't find the strike zone at all, or the only part, only part it could seem to find was somewhere in the middle around the belt area. It was just either it was getting smashed somewhere or it wasn't finding the plate at all. And now it's getting to the point where it's just not finding the plate at all. Or I should say it's not, it's, it's not finding any part of the corners. It's just finding the very middle of the plate because it's not finding anywhere on the edges. And I think that's starting to hurt him. Um, I think part of it is the fact that he, he's become a pitcher who, who has maybe his fastball as his worst pitch in the pitches that he uses. Yep. We know how good the slider is. And we know the sinker hasn't been effective for him. And, but in terms of efficiency, you could make the argument. I don't have the numbers in front of me to back it up. But if you told me his fastball was his least efficient pitch, it wouldn't surprise me because we've seen the results now. He's given up 16 home runs. 16. That, that's two, almost two and a half per nine innings. That's, that's pretty insane given what he's done. And here's the weird part. He struck out 50, 61 batters in 59 and two-thirds. So he's striking out more than nine guys per nine innings, but he can't seem to keep the ball in the ballpark. It's really, really odd. And I, I can't put my finger on just one thing. I don't know if it's just lack of preparation, and I'm not willing to do that because we know how these catchers work. We know how Stalin's deal is, Elias Diaz work, and we've heard the pitchers praise these guys for their preparation. So I'm not willing to put it on preparation. Are we willing to put it on coaching? I'm not necessarily sure because when's the last time you've seen a pitcher come into the system that didn't have these problems and all of a sudden developed them after he got here? So I don't know if it's necessarily coaching. I wonder if it's just Chris Archer not being able to do what made him good early in his career. And if it's really that simple, then we got to start asking why. And some people will say it's coaching, it's research, he can't do this, he can't do that. I'll say this much. You have a guy who built a lot of his career off the fastball-slider combination. The slider's still good, the fastball is not. And until we can diagnose why, that's the thing I'm looking at more than anything. I've got some numbers in front of me, so let me, uh, let me, let me drop them on you guys. All right, so first thing I looked at for him, you're, you're right, it's his fastball. And when I say fastball, I mean both the four-seam variety and the two-seam slash sinker that the Pirates made him bring back last year, presumably just to have some pitch to play off the slider that isn't, you know, a fastball, a four-seam fastball. So I looked at times through the order, uh, slugging percentage on his fastballs, and he had really weird splits, kind of the reverse of what you would think. So... Again, this is a slugging percentage. So let's start with his four-seam fastball. First time through this year, 857 slugging percentage on his fastball. Uh, second time through, <laughs> second time through, 333. So it gets better the second time they see it, but then the third time back to bad, 
471. So that's the four seam. Two seam slash sinker. First, it's just bad completely. First time through 714 slugging percentage against. Second time through 778. Third time somehow, if he's in there a third time to see anybody, uh, 250 slugging percentage. That's weird. I don't care what mm. kind of pitcher you are. The times through the order penalty has been around for so long. It's a widely accepted truism in baseball. And my God, it's it's, it's completely different with him. And the, you see that sinker come out of his hand. It's such a flat pitch. So at this point, Josh, what kind of radical changes, if anything, can this team take with him? I, I can't think of one. Outside of getting rid of the sinker? What, what else is there? Yeah. And the thing is, if you get rid of the sinker, what's he left throwing that you actually trust other than the slider? I mean, has he become what a two or three pitch pitcher? I, I don't know what's left to really, really focus in on. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot we can point to and say, well, this isn't working, this that isn't working. But my my next question is, if you get rid of you, you get rid of the two seamer, what's he throwing now? He's throwing a changeup that he very seldom throws. Yep. He's throwing a slider that we know that's good. He's throwing a curveball that he probably doesn't throw a lot of. So my thing is, what's really left? to lean on you got the four seam fastball that's getting tagged you got a slider that we know is pretty good now he's starting to change up that wasn't really reliable for him last season and a curveball that it was even less reliable so either he's going to have to really refine a couple pitches and you know take that midstream if you will or they're going to have to try to iron out what he has and in my estimation neither looks pretty good right now so it's, it looks like a lose-lose situation on paper but if you're going to try to start somewhere, I'll say, I'd say, okay, maybe lose the sinker, see what happens with the four-seamer, if you can find a, some kind of path to locating it better. If nothing else, just locate it better, find the quarters better, use the changeup maybe to draw some guys off balance, use that curveball when you get ahead in two strike counts, you know, use that slider maybe to get ahead, and, and get back to trying to find a way to, to play the slider off the four-seamer. Maybe use the slider away and the fastball away, and the changeup, you know, to the, the arm side to go with the fastball on the arm side. Maybe that's where you start. Maybe that's how, how you maybe build some sort of, of confidence there. I know Jamison Tyon talked about that in his first full season. He said the one thing he needed to do differently was he needed to start throwing his changeup on the arm side of the plate just to start getting right-handed hitters more off balance. Because if he kept throwing the changeup outside or down, they were going to start keying off with it and going the opposite way with it. So he wanted to be a little bit more uh, unpredictable, so to speak. So if you're going to get rid of a pitch for Archer, maybe you start doing some other things that some other things that you haven't done before and work on those. But can you teach that old dog new tricks at this point? I know he's what 31 years old, so it's weird to call him an old dog. But as long <laughs> as he's been around since 2012, he pretty much is an old dog at this point. And can you learn that new trick? I don't know. But at this point, I, if I'm Ray Sears, if I'm Chris Archer, no suggestion is a bad one. You got to try to find something that works. You got to find it yesterday. Yeah, so just to give you the numbers, he uses the changeup 13.9% of the time, the curveball 1.6% 1, 1. of the time, so basically not at all. And yeah, but I think I think they might want to take a look at it because not because it's been some amazing pitch. Uh, back when he was with the Rays, didn't really throw it that much either. Uh, if you look at the batting average against throughout the years, you know, mid to high 200s, so it's not like it's a lights out pitch for him. But at this point, his two biggest assets that he still has are his fastball velocity. As bad as it is, the velocity is still there. Averaging, uh, let's see, I think about uh, 
93.89% on his four seam, which is a little a little low, to be honest, coming down from 95.33, so about a mile and a half lower. But sinker's still there, 94.44. So you need to get back to basics, kind of what I just said with Musgrove, in my opinion. Mix and match velocity. Mix and match locations. Mix and match eye levels. Curveball can help you do that, especially with eye level. Yeah. you got to take yeah. every it, single it's trick in the book. with Jordan Lyles. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, maybe get back to thinking about how you sequence a hitter. One other pitching note I want to talk about, Josh, is the weird thing that Clint Hurdle did with Felipe Vasquez, uh, not this game today on when, on a Thursday, but the game on Wednesday. He hadn't pitched. Wait, wait, wait. Clint did something weird with Vasquez? He did that? When? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, he hadn't let him pitch in a week, um, so that he did that again. Uh, we saw that earlier in the season, I think just a couple weeks ago. So we knew he wanted to get him some work. He ended up pitching him in the eighth inning and then let Kyle Crick come out and pitch the ninth after the Pirates had taken the lead. Um, so that's a little weird, and a lot of people were kind of spouting yeah. off about it, wondering why. So what was your take on that whole uh, um, gimmick? I'm wondering why, too. He's, not, he's been sitting for seven days. You can't give him two innings. I'm, i got to go back and look how many pitches he threw in that inning. But there was nothing about that game or nothing about that outing that stood out as to why he shouldn't throw in a second inning, if for no other reason than because he's fresh because he hasn't thrown for a week. That, that might be the best reason above anything. And my thing is, at this point, if you're worried about, worried about saving him for the next day, I, I can't understand why. Because he threw, let me, see, let me see if you look at 17 pitches in that one inning. You could have given him a second one. I, I can see if he's, at, if he's near 30, after one inning, because maybe 35, 40, probably, probably what you want to limit it to. But he threw 17 in the first inning. So let him throw a second one. And maybe you put him out there instead of Kyle Crick. Maybe you got a shot at winning that game. Who knows? But I, it's, it's a head-scratcher to me. It's, it's a matter of you, you got this guy. You got this weapon on, on your, in your arsenal here. You don't use him for a week. You don't use him when you probably you could have used him, even though it's not the, the, the situation that you brought him in for. Because once again, it feeds into my theory that I've had for a while that I've had this conspiracy theory that saves are just a tool to try to drive up salaries and get certain guys paid. It yep. just sticks in my mind. So now, if, if that's what you're doing it for, why do you have this guy? Because if you got him in here specifically to save games, you've lost six in a row at this point. Well, last night you had lost five in a row. So are you really bringing him in here for, for the sake of actually winning the game? If that's the case, why aren't you leaving him in in the situation you need him most to keep runs off the board, especially after you just took the lead. And now you have a shot to do something else that might not be as superficial, but it's pretty damn close of making him the winning pitcher in that game. It, none of it from any, any definition, any angle, any, any viewpoint, whether it's traditional, whether it's a stat driven thing, whether it's a common sense thing, none of it, none of it adds up to me right now. Well, here's the quote from hurdle on that night when he talked to reporters quote, he, he being Vasquez, had not pitched in six days, and we wanted to get him a couple of different looks, Hurdle said. He hadn't been on the mound, and he's had his own set of struggles, so to put him back out there and complicate things is not the collateral damage we wanted from that. He needs to pitch a clean inning and not go back out. Um, a couple things I want to talk about there. Uh, struggles, he blew his first save in June against the Brewers. Does that constitute having to coddle him a little bit? I've, I've talked to Felipe Vasquez enough to know that he is not... He does not need that much maintenance. He loves to go out and compete, loves to go out and, in his words, he's told me he likes to go out and make hitters look foolish. So I don't think he really yeah, had to coddle his emotions there. 
And, and, and let, let's let's be let, let's be real about this. Okay, he blew his first save June first. Fine. At the same time, you know, I think you mentioned it. He's a guy who doesn't see himself as a guy who needs to really be called or need to be protect, protected. And, and when you tell me that you don't want to use your best reliever because he's had his own share of struggles, literally the entire pitching staff in the past week has had their share of struggles. He might be the least struggling guy right now. So you don't want to put your least struggling guy pitcher in the game for when you need him because he, like the rest of the pitching staff, has been struggling. Saying Felipe Vasquez is struggling like the rest of the pitching staff is like saying this drop of water in the bottom of my water bottle is part of an entire ocean. It's the same thing. His struggles are minimal compared to everybody else who's getting lit up out there, including the guy you just traded to Toronto because you designated him for assignment because his ERA was nearly 10 after 34 innings. But we're going to talk about how his struggles, uh, how that might justify him not pitching to maybe save uh, an opportunity to win a game because everybody else out there is getting tagged. This is one of those moments I talked about. When, when you look at Clinton, you go, what is he thinking? What is he saying? And why does this, why does this not make sense? And this is one of those moments. As much as I respect that man, as much baseball that he will forget more than I've ever learned, this is one of those times where I look at him and go, the evidence that you're trying to point to does not back up what you're saying. And that doesn't make me not like the man. It just tells me that this does not equal what you're saying over here. And that's what makes it frustrating. Yeah. I mean, it's weird because we talked in this, in this very podcast about uh, giving Clint Hurdle the benefit of the doubt. He's with the guys every day. He looks out for them in certain ways. Uh, whether it be their health or their mental approach. Um, so what I what I liken it to, and this is a phrase I use a lot, is that it's kind of like the battle of art versus science, right? Your science might That's tell you... It. Yeah, your science might tell you, um, don't throw this guy one more inning when he gets into, you know, one-plus innings, even though we do it sometimes. You know, maybe X, Y, and Z happens. We don't like X, Y, and Z. But the art of it is sometimes, you know, this guy has been on, in, in a cage for a week, um, and yes, in that particular inning, I looked. I looked for any way he could justify this, and Acuna, uh, Swanson, and Freeman were up. So I'm like, yes, Clint. Okay, put your best reliever, throw him for six outs because you need him to face the heart of their order. And then, by the way, after Freeman, there was Donaldson and Marquez do up. So the top of their order was up. Hmm. Yes, go ahead, throw him six, throw him two innings. Great, do it. But then, Clint Hurdle didn't really decide if he wanted to follow the art of knowing his closer, knowing what he can do, knowing what might be good for him, versus the science of, okay, only one inning. I had a preset in my mind, one inning to get him out just to get him some work. And over the course of a 162-game season, if you make enough wrong choices in that regard, suddenly you're 2-10 and 10 in your last 12. Yeah, and here's another thing that sticks out. When you want to talk about you know, the numbers aspect of it. Now, he's had, what, 26 appearances this season? In 17 of them, he's either pitched, you know, with no days of rest in between, one day of rest in between, or two. If you're a reliever, that's pretty much what you're expecting. Either you're going to pick back, pitch back-to-back days, maybe have a day in between, or at most you're going to pitch, you know, on the third day. That's fine. But then there's eight other appearances where he had at least three uh, days of rest. Two of them he had four, and then there's one apiece where he had five, six, and then seven days of rest in between. So in 26 appearances, in almost a third of them, he's had at least three days of rest in between. 
on a team that can't seem to hold leads late in games, even if they get, start, get good starting pitching, which that also doesn't happen very frequently. And you look at it and go, what's the problem here? Maybe that's part of it. Maybe because you have a guy who's resting for so long in between on a third of his appearances because your definition of why you want to use him, which is already outdated, but it limits your ability to use what might be your best weapon in all of your pitching staff right now. So when your circumstances change, you have to change your approach, even if it's not radical. At least do some things that are subtle. Okay, fine. Give him a couple of innings to work. If he's pitched a week in between, give him a couple of innings to work just to get through that game. As much as we talk about the decisions that managers will make, just to get a win and just to get that feel good end of, uh, just to get that good feeling at the end of it and be able to shake hands at the end of the night. Do that with your best pitcher in your, in your bullpen. Just to be able to shake hands at the end of the night because you hadn't done it in five days and he hadn't pitched in seven. Just do something that might make some kind of sense. That's all I'm asking. Okay. So let's talk about something positive uh, for once, and I guess we'll, t- <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, turn, we'll turn to the hitters, and there's not that much there, but a couple bright spots. Uh, Brian Reynolds. I feel like I'm just like unloading everything right now. Like I'm just this ball of stress, and I'm unloading it all on Jason. And he's just been like a really patient therapist, just listening to all of it and making notes. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm here. So I apologize. I'm here to help, man. Uh, any any way I can do it. Um. Anyway, look, Brian Reynolds uh, continues to be great. Um. You know, let's let's call it, let's not call it a slump, but let's just say he came down to earth a little bit. Back on May 24th, his average was 318. Uh, OPS was 929. He's pushed that back up to hitting 340 uh, and OPS of 934, so staying around the same in terms of slugging and on base and all that. Um, listen, the guy just continues to produce. Uh, the hitting streaks have come and gone, but he can start one up at any time. Just give him a start. Uh, Clint Hurdle gave him two starts off, eventually came in in the later innings, but uh, came right back today and had a great game. So, Josh, the reason I bring this up is how in the hell are they going to make a five-man outfield rotation work with all these guys? They, they better not even try. That's how you make it work is that you don't try to. They try to make a four-man rotation work, and they thought it worked for maybe all of six days. And then after that, the longer it went, the less it worked. If they're going to try to do that with these five guys, I, I'm already on board by saying no. I'm going to say no, and please don't do that. You, we just talked about how you need something good to go with your pitching staff. Keep the things that are going good with your, your, your position players and your starters. Keep those things, things going. For the love of God, stick with what works. Brian Reynolds works right now. He's one of the few guys on this team that actually work in terms of what you need him to do. There, there's maybe all of, what, four guys I could think of? Josh Bell is one. Brian Reynolds is one. Um, Kevin Newman is one. And Melky Cabrera. Those are your four guys in the lineup that work right now. And I'd say Starling Marquet in the last two weeks is the fifth. Those guys should be out there as often as you can get them. And if you want to make a case for Colin Moran being the sixth guy that works in your, your lineup every day, by all means, I won't argue with you. But right now, you got to stick with what works. And Brian Reynolds works. I, I was one of those guys that said, "Well, look, you're going to have you're going to have Dickerson coming back. You know, you're going to have uh, Melky Cabrera. Plus, you're going to have you know Reynolds and Marte and Polanco. There's no way you can put all these guys up here. You got to send Brian Reynolds down." Well, the problem with that is, of all those guys, Brian Reynolds has been the one guy that's been consistent from day one. Melky Cabrera has been pretty consistent since he's been on this team. Other than that, you're going to have a lot of up and down and a lot of feast and famine. So you got to go with what works. And Brian Reynolds is that guy right now. Starting Marte, who you mentioned also, is absolutely on fire right now. 
over his last seven days, uh, hitting 308 on base at 333, slugging 654 at a, uh, the multi-homer game, uh, three home runs total. I actually think it's four. Uh, four home runs total over the past week. 155 WRC+. Plus. Guy is playing out of his mind right now. He'll still swing at the occasional junk, but uh, what I'm finding with Marte, and you can tell me if you agree, is that, and I actually dug into the numbers here, so when he does swing and miss outside of his zone, he doesn't really do it again immediately afterwards. Uh, I pulled a lot of pitch pairing data. It was quite a tedious process, so kudos to me. <laughs> kudos to me for sticking through it. I'll just... I'll move on. So he'll he'll swing he'll swing and miss at something outside of the zone. Sixty nine percent of the time, on the very next pitch, he'll take a ball. Over the last uh, two weeks, uh, last sixteen days now since when I pulled the data. So during this hot streak, in other words. So he's kind of using the craft of hitting, in my opinion. Uh, maybe showing a tendency to swing earlier in the count. Um, maybe forcing a pitcher to maybe waste another pitch so he can get something back into the zone to drive. And you know, my goodness, he's been he's been so good. So why, Josh? Then are people saying to trade him? I don't get it. Because they've been saying to trade him for two years now. That's yeah. why they're saying to trade him because it just seems like the cool thing to say. Just like saying Corey Dickerson was the cool thing to say last year. That that's why. And just like saying trade Andrew McCutcheon four years ago was the cool thing to say at that point in 2015 when before this team really started to go on a run. It, it just. There, there tends to be a hot, sexy thing that people like to say during the course of the season of who they should trade. And for some odd reason, Starling Marte, after this, you know, this month or so, he's really kind of righted the ship and gotten back to looking like the guy we know. People are still saying trade Marte because I guess they don't want to feel like they appear wrong. Now, if you're making the case that you should trade him now because his trade value is higher, I'm listening because that's actually a legitimate argument. But it's not the argument that a lot of people are making. They're making the same argument that they made back in April. And it was a dumb argument in April because his trade value wasn't that high. Yes, he's been really good in the month of June, especially in these past couple weeks. So if you're telling me his trade value is going up now and he's starting to look like the guy he's capable of being, and that's why you should trade him, assuming that you think this team is not in, in a position to contend, that's an argument I'll listen to. But I haven't heard that specific argument as a reason why. People are just saying trade him because he gets on their nerves half the time. There are a lot of good players that have talent that get on people's nerves. And there's a lot of things you put up with sometimes for the sake of talent. And I've talked about Starling Marte being a prime example of the curse of talent because I think he knows that he's a guy that can do certain things that other people can't do. And sometimes he just relies on that ability to do it, even though he doesn't always succeed in doing so. But it seems to be the thing that he can really get away with. Does he get away with it all the time? Absolutely not. Sometimes he looks foolish. But sometimes when that natural talent takes over, he looks like a fantastic baseball player. And the last two weeks are probably a better example of the latter than of the former. But, yeah, people are saying to trade him because they've always wanted to trade him. It just so happens that now his trade value looks better than maybe it did before. Josh, I'm going to give you uh, a couple stats from a player. Let's call him Player X. Uh, player X has a, a triple slash line of hitting 208, 269, and 361 over his last uh, 28 days, so his last month. He has a strikeout rate right now for this entire season of 29.1%. That's the highest of his career, as is his 14.9 swinging strike rate, 14.9%. Uh, and if you want to get real technical on his whiff per swing, so when he chooses to swing at a fastball, 28% of the time he's missing. 
would you say Player X is having a lost season or a season that's pretty much just not good? No, run those numbers by me again because I want to make sure I have these until the contest. <laughs> All right, hitting two hundred eight. I think I know where you're going. <laughs> hitting two hundred eight. We'll just we'll just leave it at that. Two hundred eight over his last twenty eight days, only getting on base at two sixty nine. Overall, for the entire season, he's striking out at twenty nine percent of the time, highest ever of his career. The also highest of his career is his overall swinging strike rate, swinging strike rate, which is fourteen point nine percent. And if you want to get real technical, when he decides to swing at a fastball, he misses 28.1% of the time. So that's uh, also a career high. So is this player having just a season where it's just, at this point in June, it's it's a lost one? This isn't Jose Bautista in like 2007, is it? <laughs> no, it's Gregory Polanco in 2019. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of had a feeling that's where you were going. Yeah, I knew. I, it was pretty obvious. But yeah, just I just want to know what you think because, yeah, he came back earlier than everyone thought. Showed a little bit of power here and there. Had a couple games, maybe a week where he was looking like he was trending up. Then all of a sudden you look up and he has these horrible, horrible peripherals. Is it too late to say that they can salvage something from the season? Is it too early to say his season is a bust? Um, I don't think it's too late to say that maybe they didn't do the right thing by him as far as making sure that he was not only healthy, but in a rhythm of playing baseball every day and doing the things that he normally does on a regular basis. I think it's too, I think it's definitely um, not too early to say that he's been a guy that I've kind of put in parentheses for this entire season. I didn't like the thought of them bringing him back so quickly. I didn't like the thought of them rushing him back. I, I didn't like the thought of him being inserted into this lineup so soon. I would have rather, seen him had the amount of time that he needed to rehab even if it was being too careful especially considering that in the meantime while you're waiting for him to come back you've got Melky Cabrera hitting well it's the beginning of Brian Reynolds doing his thing so you didn't need to rush him back I I didn't like the thought of it before they did it and I didn't like the thought of him while they did it and that's even considering the fact that they had other options that they could have used before they brought him back. Maybe we're not talking about force-feeding a five-man alpha rotation if you're letting Gregory Polanco just work his way back gradually. Maybe he's just coming back now and actually playing at a level where he can play every day, where there are no setbacks, where there are no frustrations, where everything looks natural, where everything becomes fluid and normal movement. And maybe we feel better about what he's doing, and maybe he comes back and starts on a much hotter note than he did when he came back earlier this season. So for me, I'm not even frustrated about what he's doing. I'm more frustrated about how he's been handled. And that's what makes me a little bit more nervous. You know, I wonder what they can do. But because... the question, I don't think the season's bust either. Okay, well, that's fair. I mean, I don't think what... I just wonder what they can do because you can't really... I mean, you could make a phantom, a phantom injury and do an IL trip with a rehab assignment and all that. But I think that might be a little harsh. I think maybe you take this time when you have a glut of outfielders and do a classic Lynn Hurdle move and unplug him for three days. I think it's that bad. I think it's that at that point where he really just has to get his head right and maybe step away from the grind of it, you know, every so often. Uh, did you did you and, watch? And if you're gonna do it, and if you're gonna do do it now, yeah. Why do you have four other guys that can start every day? Do it now. Yes. Why do you have Reynolds and Marte and Dickerson and Cabrera? Do it now. If you're gonna unplug him, by all means, do it now. And let these other guys who actually are hitting consistently, at least Reynolds and Cabrera and Marte from that particular perspective, I, I still kind of give an incomplete to Corey Dickerson. It's only been one a handful of games. But as long as you have three guys that can go out every day and do it, 
while you let this guy get himself together, do it. But at this point, if you're going to sit your closer for seven days and he's actually pitching well, why not sit your struggling right fielder for three? Yeah, it makes sense to me. And then uh, I want to ask you, Josh, did you watch Breaking Bad when it was on? Uh, you know what? Oh. I actually started out when the series first started out. Then they got a couple seasons in. I lost track, never finished it, and I've never actually gone back and watched it through now that it's over. But the little bit that I watched, I did like. Well, this reference is going to suck. This is like when you make uh, the wire references for me, and I have no idea what you're talking about. Because... Right. <laughs> so I'll just say this, and then you have Lonnie Chisenhall out there who's acting like uh, Saul Goodman's bodyguard, Huel, out of the safe house, just waiting for everything to go down. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, that I know. That I, I got that one. Okay, good. I was I was worried about that, so that one might have just been for the listeners, but, you know, next time you, you get me with a with a wire reference, all right? Uh, although I did mention that uh, during the game last night, that Ozzy Albies looks just like Naaman from The Wire, and my wire fans know what I'm talking about. Oh, but geez. if you saw him come around first base and his helmet flew off, he looked like Naaman. He looked like one of the corner boys running away from the cops. Like, it, it just it totally stuck out to me. <laughs> so, shout out to my wife. Man. All right. Nice, nice team effort there. Um, <laughs> so, we're going to take a we're real... We're even mentioned TV shows. <laughs> we're going to take a real quick break, and we'll be right back. <laughs> And as you know, since we relaunched with Josh, we are all about trying to think of some fun games, some fun segments that we can have on our show to kind of liven things up as we're talking about, you know, a team that's in free fall. So um, it's a game I came up came up with called Pick a Side, where I give Josh two hot takes, and he decides which he sides with, and he has to side with one. No hedging of the bets, no qualifiers, no, but then again, none of that. All right, Josh? Fair enough. Okay. Fair enough. The Archer trade sucked. Pick a side. Oh, I never thought I'd come to this. I got to agree. Yeah. I got to agree. And when this trade happened, I was one of those people that had no expectation that this would ever happen. I never thought they pulled this off. And then when it happened, I'm sitting there going, okay, they did it. They finally went for one. They, they took a risk and shot from the hip and did it. And you saw the players respond. They they were a guy that they welcome with open arms, and they're they're you know they're taking pictures together, celebrate him getting there. You know the fans get behind it. You know he's, he's going to practice with the Steelers. He shows up with an Antonio Brown jersey, which I'm starting to think was a curse, maybe in hindsight, but that's just <laughs> the point. But you, there, there's all these signs that pointed to okay, they finally did something that people wanted them to do for a long time, and they finally bucked up and did it. And for no other reason, I respected the fact that they did something that no one on earth expected them to do. Then he came in, and he pitched, and we got mixed results. And I was willing to wipe the slate slate clean from last season and say maybe things would get better this season. And then you look at 11 starts in, he leads the league in home runs allowed, and his FIP, not even his ERA, his FIP is 6.15. Yeah, this trade sucked. Yeah, I'm with you, and I joked at the beginning of this show, but I, I'll say it again. I was a staunch defender. Can't do it anymore. I just can't. I, yeah, there's, there's a line you got to draw, and I think we're both there. But you know what's really screwed up is if you gave me a time machine and I could uh, put, put Neil Huntington under hypnosis, 
you know, maybe I would even say do it again and see if you get some kind of butterfly effect where something breaks a different way with Archer and it turns out better. Maybe he doesn't have that hernia uh, problem later in the season and he gets that confidence and, and builds up. So in a weird way, I would say do it again. But here's the next one. Uh, the next hot take. The Pirates are done and they should tear it down. Trade everybody. Trade Vasquez. Trade Marte. Trade Polanco. Trade whoever. Pick a side. Uh, no. Yeah. If you're going to trade guys who don't have trade value. I, I, I'm, the firm, I'm a firm believer in if you're going to trade a guy, you're doing it because you can get something for him. If you can't get anything for him, why are you trading him? How many trades did we see where guys get sent off and you got nothing in return? Remember the Neil Walker trade when all you got back was a pitcher that no one wanted and no one really gave a chance after that in John Neese? Remember that trade? Because you traded Neil Walker when his trade value was the absolute lowest as opposed to an exact year before that where his trade value was probably at its highest. Wasn't a good move at the time. When Andrew McCutcheon got traded, his trade value probably wasn't at his greatest. And this was after you were doing a, a square dance with the Nationals on a deal that never happened. Yep. So you, you let that go by, and then you trade him when his trade value is low. Now, granted, the guys you got back in that trade haven't been too bad. I still like Cal Crick. I still like Jason Martin. Okay, fine. I won't, I won't begrudge you for that. But if you trade him at a higher value, you get better returns. If you tear this down now, if you trade guys like Polanco now and guys like Dickerson, and if you, if you start trading off these guys, even Chris Hunter, you start trading off these guys now, what do you think you're going to get back? You think you're going to get guys back that you can actually rebuild this team with? Oh, no. If you're going to rebuild this team, you're going to rebuild it with maybe the good draft picks you get for the next couple of years because you are going to suck for a good while. Maybe that's how you rebuild it. But you're not going to rebuild it through trades if you trade everything now. That's not going to be the way you do it. If anything, at this point, I'm looking at the next six weeks as the opportunities to where, okay, you want to try to, you want to think about trading Starling Marte? Let his trade value continue to build because these last two weeks have been a good start to that. If you're talking about trading Corey Dickerson, you got to let him play because he hasn't played in the majority of this season. And if he wants to have, if he wants to have any kind of value, he's going to have to play to do it. You're going to have to keep playing Melky Cabrera and giving them opportunities because he might have the most stable trade value of any guy who has an expiring contract. So you're going to have to build those guys up. If you want to trade Chris Archer, um, what were you saying about the time? That might have to be part of the process because that might be the only way you get any kind of value for him. Because you think you're going to get what you gave up for him to get rid of him now? Absolutely not. If you tear it down now, you're not going to make yourselves any better down the road then you could have been like keeping everybody on board because right now so many guys have low trade value and it won't work. Now, if you're talking about trading guys like Francisco Liriano because his trade value is high, okay, you're not going to get a lot for him, but do it. If you want to trade a guy like Melky Ferreira because his trade value is pretty good, okay, you're probably not going to get a lot for him, but you can do it. It's better than the alternative. There are a couple guys that probably are worth trading because they have value, but the number of guys that that encompasses is about what, four? And one of those is probably Vasquez. And why would you trade a closer that's relatively affordable for the next three years? Even that makes no sense to me. Now, he might get you something back in return, but now you got no closer. Because yep. who else is in your bullpen right now that you even remotely trust? It, it makes no sense to do that right now. Because if you do that, you're going to make yourself even worse off than you were before you got to this point. Yeah, I guess you know what really gets me about this particular hot take is it always seems to be Vasquez. And I think what people don't understand is that he has four years of control left right now. 
Um, the next two years are under $8 million, so A, he's right in your affordable wheelhouse for any team, especially the Pirates. And B, the return you're going to get if you theoretically trade Vasquez with four years of control versus the return that you might get when he has, say, two years of control, those last two years of his contract, 22 and 23, is not going to be that, that much of a difference. So... Why no, wouldn't you just not. see if you, why wouldn't you just see if the next two years you can actually put a window together? So that's that's my piece on that. <laughs> Here's the thing I keep coming back to: they're like, "Oh, Trey Vasquez." I'm sitting there going, "Next year, your closer, who's who's easily one of the top five closers in baseball, next year he's going to cost you five point seven five million, and his actual value is probably four times that. Yep, his value in two years is going to be seven point seven five million, and his actual value will probably be around three or four times that." And you're going to let that guy go? Here's the thing. When you sign deals like Vasquez, or you have a good moderate amount of money that you're spending for that kind of production, you know what it allows you to do in theory, even if you don't actually do it? You know what it allows you to do? It allows you to take those savings and go get guys that can help you. So why are you going to discredit or discount the one contract that allows you to do that and get rid of it to do what? Really, you know, like I'll, I'll make the same case. How much better is it going to make you? I don't know if it makes you that much better, as opposed to keeping a cost-controlled closer that can at least, if no one else can help you win the games, that guy can, and, and use that savings that you would have to pay anybody close to his actual market value to go get someone else that can actually help you. That's why I, I think trading Vasquez. I keep hearing that and going, "What sport are you watching? <laughs> have you not paid attention to baseball in the last five years?" That's not how this works. It's just not how it works. It's just not a very, it's not a prudent organizational thing to do when you have something like that that has that kind of value. And you totally, if they're if they've won on any move in the last three years, that's one move they've actually won on. Yes, absolutely. So let's uh, go back to our last hot take for Josh to pick a side on, and here it is: uh, Francisco Cervelli should never catch for the Pirates again. Pick a side. Oh, I got to agree with this one. Oh, really? And it's not even—it's not even for the performance's sake. It's not even for the trade value sake. It, it's to the point where I just have a concern for the man's well-being. I, I, I'm just there. When, when you keep having a guy going on the IL once, twice, three times in a, each in a season over a two-three year span, when he goes on the IL once, that should be a red flag, especially for a concussion. When he's doing it multiple times in a two, three-year span, it's no longer red flags. You, you now have bullhorns and alarms and, and air horns screaming at you that something's wrong. And I, I'm, I'm legitimately concerned. And that's because, if for no other reason, Francisco Cervelli is a really good guy. He's a guy who's respected in that clubhouse by his teammates, by the organization, by the media. Jason, you've interacted with him. He, he's one of the most cordial friendly, accommodating people in that clubhouse. Yes. So as a person, I I genuinely like Francisco Cervelli. I want him, when his baseball days are over, I want him to be able to spend time with his family, to to be able to play with his children and know who he is and know what his career was in baseball. I want that for him down the road, just because he's a human being that I like and respect. And if it means him not catching anymore, then yes, I don't think he he should catch ever again. I think they should find something else for him to do. Now, whether or not his career should be over, I'll leave that for someone else, more or less him, to decide. But putting him behind the plate again where it seems like everything continues to go wrong and it's totally Murphy's law with him, I'll agree with that. I'll take that side. 
I think I agree, and I don't think I can add much more than what you just did there. So hopefully I'll just say that hopefully the decision is his. And if the decision is yeah. his, like you just said, that means you know hopefully he'll be able to lead a long, uh, fruitful life with no issues. You, 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 know the, you know how I feel when it comes to stuff like this. Life is bigger than the game. I say this all the time on my radio show. I say it all the time when I'm on TV talking about this. Life is bigger than the game. There's nothing else that really, as far as the physical side for him and the medical side for him, I don't know how much else he could possibly do to prove that he's at so much risk right now. Or I should say to, to disprove the risk that he's at right now. I'd rather he say, you know what? Let me walk away. I still have all my faculties. I'm still in good health. I'm still young. You have the rest of your life ahead of you. You made a really good living in baseball. You've already beaten the odds. You're already ahead of the curve. You've already won the lottery, so to speak. Just enjoy the rest of your life and be able to do it healthy. That's all I ask. Yep. I couldn't say it better myself. So that's it for Pick a Side. Uh, you know, that was fun. Maybe we'll do it again. But what we want, <laughs> what we want to end with, maybe Josh will get me next time he uh, does the hosting, and I'll uh, have to come up with some good takes like he did. Um, but right now we want to hear from you. So every week when we're about to record the show, we put out a question of the week on Twitter. And by the way, you can follow me at Jay Rollison, PGH. You can follow Josh at Josh Taylor HD. And this this week's question was a timely one. Uh, basically, I asked, should Mitch Keller be given another major league start after this one, the one where he got basically shellacked again? And the caveat here is without going down to AAA in between. So in other words, if he were to stay in the major league rotation, should he uh, make his next start? And Josh, I'll read you a few responses, and then uh, we'll get get your take. So our friend Meredith uh, says, why the heck not? He needs experience in the bigs. Going back to AAA is not really going to benefit him. Uh, at the Notorious STG, I really want to know what that stands for, he says, sure, why not? He has a bad first inning, and two starts now, and had no mechanical issues and no confidence issues. And again, he says, what does sending him to Indianapolis really do to benefit? A lot of people say yes. Let's read you one more reply here, and then we'll get your take. Scott, at the Buckos fan, says yes. He's better than other options for the Buckos starting rotation. Keller needs more than just a start here and there to figure out pitching at the major league level. Josh, what's your take on Keller? Obviously, struggled again coming out of the gates. Uh, never really could recover from that the way he did in that first start. Uh, lasted three innings. What's your take? Scott Meredith pretty much summed it up perfectly for me. Because from Meredith's perspective, what other choice do you have? And from Scott's perspective, he's right. He's better than most of the options you have. We just talked about it. You got no Trevor Williams, at least for you know the next few days or so, depending on what happens with him. You still got no Jordan Lyles. You still got no Jamison Tyone. What do you have to rely on right now? An inconsistent Joe Musgrove, and even more inconsistent Chris Archer, and Nick Kingham, who you just DFA'd, a rookie Davis who started, and he's on the I.L. What, what else do you have? You have nothing else. If for no other reason, if, if just for necessity's sake, you got, you got to start a, a living, breathing human being who has a functioning arm that can throw a ball 60 feet, 6 inches. And you just happen to have a guy named, named Mitch Keller who's here who can do that better than most people. Put him out there. Yeah, I agree, and I want to see him make another major league start before a very specific reason. So the book on Keller has always been uh, great fastball, really good fastball, 65-rated fastball on the 20-80 scale, a plus curveball. He has thrown the curveball in his major league starts uh, just 7% of the time, and I want to know why. You know, he's, mm. He started off the last start really just throwing fastballs 
pretty much almost exclusively in that first inning. And then for his two starts total, he's thrown the slider 23.9% of the time, which he just started throwing this year. And yes, we saw Jameson Tyon do it last year, but that's also a guy who was established at the big league level. So I want to know why he's not throwing the curveball. Do the Pirates not have confidence in it just yet? And they don't want to have him get tagged and then lose confidence and maybe set him back a little bit? So that's why I want to see him again. And I'll read you just a, a couple more responses and we'll get some closing thoughts on him. Um, let's see. Uh, at Punzo23 says, Aside from them just needing a starter, at this point the Pirates are playing their way out of contention. I don't think it would hurt him hurt to keep him up in order to pitch at the big leg level. You just hope it works out better than it did with Glass now. And that's an interesting thing that yeah. uh, Ponzo brings up about Glass now because this feels a little different to me than than what Glass now went through. It does to me too. It does it does feel different to me too. I'll give you that. But yeah, not there, there's a thought. What are, are you trying to tank? If you're trying to tank then send him down and bring someone else up here and let him get shellacked every fifth day. Yeah. But if you're not trying to tank, if you need somebody to throw, have them come up to throw. Yeah, I agree. So, I think that's a good place to end our show uh, this week. I want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, the very best way you can help our show grow is to tell a friend. That's always the best way to grow is the word-of-mouth method. You can also review our show on whatever podcast platform you use. It all helps. And, again, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at PGH. He's at Josh Taylor HD, and uh, I think that's about it. We'll talk to you next time.